Hello and welcome to the Almost LA Podcast. My name is Aiden. My name is Audra. All right. That was the second time we had to do that little intro because mom didn't like the way that she said her own name. Oh, I hate it. Okay. <laughs> Hello. All right. So on my end, I have moved into my new apartment in Glendale, California. Glendale. It's very cool. It's very, it's a little loud, so there might be. Oh, here it goes. Some, you hear? Kind of. A yeah. bus. So there'll be a Gus. A, a, a Gus, yeah. That <laughs> won't do a great start. Your friend Gus. <laughs> there will be a bus going by, occasionally, probably. And uh, maybe some homeless people yelling. Transients. That's also very. Mm-hmm, transients. Mm-hmm. The LA transients. And then, oh, is that what you're supposed to call them? Yes. What, why? What does that mean? I don't know. It's just the proper way transient, of saying it. Transient? Like, like traveling? Like a transatlantic? <laughs> no, transient. Keep going. Oh, okay. Uh, and then also, I live next to a baby, so maybe you hear a baby crying. Just a baby? Yeah, it's a baby <laughs> in a studio apartment. The baby is like, screw my parents, I'm out of here. I'm going to yeah, live in Glendale. <laughs> he is a studio because he can't open doors. He's not tall enough to crawl around. So there's <laughs> no doors. He leaves all the doors open, and he just crawls around his apartment. <laughs> Much like I do here in my studio yes. apartment. Glendale, you, guys are, you guys are best friends. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> Okay, so for, by the way, I had the most awkward interact elevator interaction. I hate elevators because now I feel like I'm always in a hotel, and then elevators are awkward because you're just, like, standing in there with somebody. Well, okay, let's just start like, off because you moved out of, like, a dorm-like situation with, like, a bunk bed that you well, hit your head it, on it, to, like, an apart- a real okay, apartment. Yeah. yeah. Like, this is a real apartment where my neighbors aren't, like, students. Yeah. And I can't just, like, go downstairs with my friends and play Xbox and then just, like, come back up to my apartment. That's kind of, like, what was going on. Yeah. But, um... Yeah. So anyway, my elevator, it was actually the dad of the kid uh, oh. that lives next door. I don't know if he was just visiting or what was happening. But <laughs> right. He was passing by and yes, he was bringing some drinks up visit. to his apartment. <laughs> they were partying. They were in like a welcoming party. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was going to say something because we were just waiting for the elevator. So he like came up and then we. it's kind of like where you know, oh, I've seen you before. Yeah. I, you know I'm your new neighbor. I know that your kid keeps me up at night to the walls. <laughs> And he's like, you're the a-hole that plays music really loud all night. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. So I was going to be like, oh, hey, like, I'm 303. Well, there's my part. I don't remember. Right. Um, <laughs> Safety 101. Um, so I, I was going to say, like, oh, here's my apartment number. Like, I'm, I play guitar late at night. So if I ever am keeping your kids up, like, mm-hmm. just let me know and I'll stop. Like, mm-hmm. just being nice. Right. And then I was, like, working up the courage to, to say that to him. And then it was just like so weird and awkward standing there not saying anything that when we were in the for the elevator he was just he just stopped waiting for the elevator and then just ran up the stairs. Oh seriously? Like, oh. That's weird. Yeah, well probably just because the elevator takes forever, but to me it was like because it was awkward. Because you're insecure and you're 19 and he's a serial killer. No, and he's just a regular adult. Oh, okay. I like my um, I like my story better. He's the baby. Yeah, the baby left because his dad's a serial killer. And what's been going on in your world, mother? Um, we went to Disney World and everyone got the flu, and I feel like I have barf all over me. Yay! Oh, that sucks. Yeah, that's it. So everybody's still sick. Kind of, yeah. So except I, for Kayla. No, she's the only one that's sick. Yeah. Oh really? Little kids barfing's awesome every twenty minutes. Wah. <laughs> Wah. <laughs> yeah. That's what it sounds like. Mommy, Wah. I puked on the floor. Um, all right. Well, that's exciting. Yep. 
we obviously haven't done this a while. We've had a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. We moved you in your apartment in 12 hours from Pasadena to Glendale. That was a fun day. Yep. Um, it's hard. And that's it. All right. So we're on to, speaking of living, feeling like you live in a hotel, Hotel California. Oh. Wow. Part two. Nice segue. I mean, that I segue know. could, it, it should have been earlier. In but while well, you were babbling about your awkward hotel thing, or <laughs> I know. your elevator okay. thing. Um, so we left off, which I can't remember because it seems like forever ago. Um, founding men member Bernie Ledin was had exited the band. He was like, I'm out of here, leaving. By the way, uh, this is Eagles Part 2, right? Did you say that? Eagles Part 2, yeah. Why is it Hotel California? Yeah. So this part's like the Hotel California era. The Golden Days? Golden Days. The glory Days? Glory Days. The height of their fame. Uh, yeah. Randy Meisner is still hanging in there. I think last episode we mentioned he might have left, but we were kind of like, the ending was a little weird. Uh, but he's still mm -hmm. kind of in there throughout the Hotel California album, but he's okay. really not wanting to be there at this point. And Joe Walsh has entered, and he replaced Bernie permanently after Bernie left, but he had been kind of there, um, I don't know, right before the album started. So let's kind of go over the two newest members really quick uh, to kind of recap everything. So Don um, Felder, who you remember, came in to do slide guitar for the band in 1974. He and then ended up staying with the band. He grew up in Florida, Gainesville, Florida, to be exact. And he also watched Elvis on Ed Sullivan, which clearly every single one of these people did and would not have been the Eagles if they hadn't turned on the TV at night. Um, he's a self-taught guitar player and playing by ear. And he went to work at a music school where a teacher taught him theory and notation, which I thought was what Aiden's doing. Uh, Bernie Ledin and Don um, Henley went to high school together. So that's what their connection is. And side note, Stephen Stills spent some time as a kid living in Gainesville and was in a band called the Continentals. Bernie Ledin um, took Stills' place in the band when he moved away from Gainesville. So Felder was also giving guitar lessons at a time at a local music shop where he also met Dwayne Allman, who would go on to be part of the Allman Brothers. And Dwayne actually taught him the slide guitar. And Dwayne and his brother lived in Florida for a bit in their teens. And then one of Felder's students was Tom Petty, who was born oh, and wow. raised in Gainesville. RIP Tom cool. Petty, RIP Dwayne Allman. Um, so, well, they're both dead. Uh, so you remember from our River Phoenix episode, he lived in Gainesville, Florida mainly, and then was kind of, uh, you know, to do his music stuff, and then would go to L.A. to do his movie stuff. So Gainesville is like this, obviously, you know, um, was a big musical influence even back into the 70s, okay? So from there, obviously, the Eagles, the Allman Brothers, and Tom Petty all started there. So Felder went on to L.A. Um, and moved there in 1973, and he played with Crosby and Nash when they were out doing their duet stuff, which we talked about in our, um, our uh, what do you call it, episode. Um, nice. <laughs> the Kate Laurel Canyon. Thank you. There you go. Oh, nice. So Crosby's Kate makes an appearance again in another episode. He is across the board in every episode. Joe Walsh was born Joseph Fiddler, which could not be more country rock. <laughs> yeah, what? Um, he's from Kansas. Uh, it's also known as the Clown Prince of Rock, um, Average Joe, also. Joe's mom was a classically trained pianist, and his dad died in a plane crash when he was five years old, sadly. Uh, he took his stepdad's last name, Walsh, um, because at the time that was like 
the law. Um, he, I don't think they kind of wanted to do that, but that's what they kind of had to do. Uh, he saw the Beatles on TV as opposed to Elvis, and he got a guitar at age 10. So without the Beatles and Elvis on Ed Sullivan, who knows how many musicians would have kind of we would have missed out on, which seems crazy to me. Um, mm -hmm. Walsh was at, at Kent State um, when his band, The Measles, recorded two songs for the band Ohio Express on their Beg, Borrow, and Steal album. So Joe was at Kent State during the massacre in 1970, which we also talked a little bit about on our um, Laurel Canyon episode. As a refresher, the Ohio National Guard opened fire on unarmed students during the protest of Cambodian invasions ordered by President Nixon's. Four students died and nine injured. Um, the song, the uh, CSNY song, Ohio, was written days after the massacre. And Walsh realized after the massacre that he didn't need a degree and left school at that point, so he was heavily influenced by that massacre as well. In 1968, Walsh was playing in a band called the James Gang, and they opened for Cream in Detroit in 1968, which is super cool. And from that gig, they were signed to ABC Records, which is where your stepdad got his start in the music business in the ABC mailroom. Oh, yeah. So nice. Bill Shimizik, the guy, <laughs> Shimizik, the guy with all. I the always, I always like to think that I like. I'm not reading these guys' names, but the guy's last name is like John, <laughs> and you just cannot pronounce. No, it's Shimizik. It's the producer with all the consonants in his name. Yeah. Um, he was working at ABC at the time as well, so that is where Joe and Bill met. So that's the kind of connection um, when Bill comes in to do some of the Eagles albums. Um, and he, as you recall, produced the Eagles' third album and then went on to do Hotel California as well. Uh, Joe's next band was called Barnstorm, um, which had little success and where Walsh, influenced by Pete Townsend, began messing around with guitar effects, which he became known for. And he found his signature attack sound. He joined the Eagles in, in, 1995, way after they quit. Uh, he joined the Eagles in 1975. Why can't I say that? So I'm going to play you uh, while a cop goes by your apartment. Yep. <laughs> L.A., baby. I'm going to yeah. play you what is considered Joe Walsh's, one of his best guitar solos, which oh. is from a performance in 1972 with his old band, Barnstorm, and this is Turn the Stone. And I'm going to kind of cut to the, uh, the uh, solo here. Well, give me one second. I just totally went by it. That is like one of three guitar solos he has during that uh, 72 performance. That's on YouTube, and he had, if you want to look it up, and he has some of the best facial expressions during a guitar solo that I've ever seen on that song. Really? Yes, it's hilarious. Better than John Mayer? Better. I think John Mayer ripped off all his moves from Joe Walsh. <laughs> so at this point, the Eagles are under a lot of pressure to put out like a killer album. Um, 
and they've had at this point four studio albums and then if you, as you remember we talked about they had already sent out their first greatest hits album from the covered songs from 71 to 75. I can't imagine being like on. how stressful it actually is to become that successful of an artist and then you feel like you've so many people that are just expecting every next song or album you make to be great front to back or have some like incredible artistic themes and and at the same time be like tired of touring probably getting tired of the people they're in the band with right it just well and after four albums you already put out your greatest hits it's crazy yeah or your fir- then, first greatest hits because you have so many you ha- and then and making an, a new album after your greatest hits album yeah you make your greatest hits album there's no way i wouldn't be like oh it's obviously all downhill from here right like i might as well start like a tequila company or something <laughs> i don't know Seems okay very stressful okay, ryan reynolds uh, or is that vodka? Whatever, I don't know. Um, I was going for more like a, what, Sammy Hagar? Oh, yeah, Sammy Hagar. That's a better. Uh, that's better. Um, well. <laughs> Thanks, uh, Mom. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I think feel like we're punchy today. Um, well, they did go on to create the best album ever. So yeah. um, there you go. So Felder rented a house in Malibu. Um, in 70 whatever four I guess four or five and wrote 15 to 16 songs and put them on his I think it's TEAC T-E-A-C I meant to look it up did not four track tape recorder that was his kind of MO that's how he worked so his process at this point was um, putting songs on this tape recorder and sending them to Henley Henley couldn't play anything but the drums he couldn't play piano or guitar which is usually what people write music on um but he was a great lyricist and vocalist so felder would put the stuff on the cassettes send them to henley he would listen to him and anything that would pop out to him that he liked he then he would write lyrics to which is the opposite of what we talked about like elton john um and bernie toppin did toppin would write all the poetry and lyrics and then send him to elton john and then he would write the music to it so it's the exact opposite so felder came up with the intro to hotel california um, which was kind of a Spanish reggae mix, and Henley came up with a song, uh, the lyrics and stuff. So Henley was listening to Felder's tape one night as he drove around Beverly Hills, and he was actually happened to be close to the Beverly Hills Hotel, which we'll talk about later on, which just kind of ties this whole album together, when he heard what he called a Mexican reggae sound, or like a bolero sound to him that he heard. Mm-hmm. And he knew he could write something for it, and he knew it could be a hit. He later uh, drove out the, most of the lyrics with a little help from Frey, but f- and he wanted it to be like a story. He kind of knew at this point the concept of this album. He wanted to write something um, like a movie, kind of a song that was like a movie, and then kind of had the concept album from there. So he rode out into the desert for inspiration, which they did a lot. And, and he was also using um, some stuff from a breakup that he just had from a recent girlfriend, and her name was Lori uh, Rodkin. Rodkin, sorry, Lori Rodkin. And he, this song would later become Hotel California. So Lori was a pretty interesting lady. She was kind of seen like a typical L.A., you know, very entrenched in the L.A. culture in the 70s. She was a home designer for Alice Cooper and Rod Stewart. That was one of her jobs. She became engaged to Bernie Toppin, strangely enough. Then she became a manager for actors Brad Pitt, Robert Downey Jr., and a couple other people. And then she... then became a jewelry designer and Michelle Obama wore her designs at the presidential inauguration. 
and, wow. and they're now sitting in the Smithsonian Institution. So she's had she's a, done a few things. She's done a cr- bunch of stuff and has had a, I'm just assuming a very cool, crazy life. Yeah. The lines, um, her mind is Tiffany twisted. She got the Mercedes Benz. She got a lot of pretty, pretty boys that she calls friends is rep- referencing Lori. So in mm-hmm. the studio, Felder couldn't remember the solo from the demo tape because by the time they went to the studio, it was a year later. So he started playing the wrong song and Henley immediately knew it was wrong. So he was like, what are you playing? This is wrong. They start kind of freak out. So he called up his housekeeper um, and she found the demo tape somewhere in Felder's house and she played it over the phone for them so it could kind of jumpstart his memory. And they set about recording it. They had to do it twice. Felder at the time used his 59 Les Paul Sunburst and it was plugged into a 50s Tweed Deluxe amp. A 50, uh, 59 Les Paul Sunburst today would probably be like, I don't even know how much those are worth. Thousands Tens of dollars. Tens of thousands, maybe really? $100,000. Yeah, I'm pretty sure those are. Look it up. Um, Joe Walsh played a 70 Fender Telecaster, which is what he kind of liked to play at that time. Yeah, they uh, usu- that's what I would pick. Yeah, they usually played two different sounding guitars, so they you know, could kind of have. I actually knew that. Yeah, and they did that on basically all the songs that they played on together. Mm-hmm. Um, when they played the song on stage, eventually they, tr- they they always tried to one up each other, which Walsh felt um, made the song sound better on stage. So the front cover of the album was is the Beverly Hills Hotel. If you didn't know, it was fo- oh, um, yep, yeah, it was by photographer David Alexander. They actually tried um, three hotels to see which one was the best. So they tried three different hotels and selected the Beverly Hills Hotel eventually. The photo was taken at dusk from a cherry picker, which is one of those, you know, things that they take the leaves off of, like, palm trees, or they do, like, telephone wire repair on or whatever. Mm-hmm. No one recognized the hotel at first, um, and there has been many rumors about which hotel it was. I, growing up, thought it was the Coronado Hotel in San Diego, so I was yep. one of those that didn't know what it was. And didn't know until I literally did the research for, the <laughs> for this podcast. Um, when the Beverly Hills Hotel found out, they tried to sue. Um, they did? Yeah, I don't, you know, it was kind of, in, it was image infringement rights or whatever because you can't take a picture of a, something and then make profit off of it, which they were doing. I don't know if they settled okay, out of no. court or if they just decided it became an instant iconic album and they were okay with it or what. I didn't really go any further with it. but um, And the album was a high point for Bill Shimishimisek, Shimishimis, Shimishimis, the producer. I'm sorry. I'm just making fun of his last name because, you know, I can't pronounce it. Um, but this was like the highlight of his recording career. It was a six minute song. And of course, the record company Asylum pushed to have it edited down because they thought it was way too long and everyone refused, which at this point, we're all glad that they did refuse. Yeah. So what does this song mean? There has been many interpretations and rumors about this song. Um Some of it thinks it's about a mental institution. Some of it thinks it's about drug addiction. One of the biggest rumors is that it has satanic ties to the Church of Satan's leader, Anton LaVey. Yeah, probably. So the phrase is uh, Master of Chambers and the Beast, which are in the song, um, as well as having a shadowy figure that appears on the balcony on the photo inside the album cover, which people think look like Satan, which people think look like Satan, and is actually a hired actress. But according to the uh, band, it's all ludicrous, all the rumors. Um, the lyrics, warm smell of Kalitas rising up in the air, is something else that people speculate about. They think it's drugs, they think it's sex, whatever. 
Colitis is the Mexican slang meaning little bottom or tails. So some people think it was about all the tail they got. Um, but the slang in Mexico refers to the buds of marijuana. So it is said to be weed. But the band Black Sabbath, who recorded their album Technical Ecstasy at the same time in the studio next to the Eagles, um, said that they had left about a pound of cocaine on the mixing board, like every day. So they think it's about coke. Um, Sabbath sound was so loud at the time when they were recording that the Eagles songs um, had to be re-recorded a bunch due to sound leakage. That's funny. <laughs> Literally every album that you look up at this time, like Fleetwood Mac and stuff, everyone's doing so much cocaine that they're all insane. Like the mid-70s? Yeah. Another well-documented... Well, I thought coke was like an 80s thing. Well, I think it got down to mainstream people, you know, like, like just idiots working in the bank, you know, banking oh. or whatever in the 80s, but anybody that had money in the 70s, like rock stars and whatever, were doing coke. Cool. Another well-documented rumor, um, which is more like a humorous diss, is was started by the band Steely Dan, which is mm. the one of the Eagles' 70s rivals. Uh, Steely Dan put out a lyrical diss on their song, Everything You Did, which is about a couple fighting. The lyric goes, turn up the Eagles, the neighbors are listening. Now, I don't know how this is a diss, but according to the band's co-founder, Walter Beckers, his girlfriend loved the Eagles, like, a ton, and wasn't shy about it, and always played them around the apartment, which irritated the hell out of him. So he put that little diss like oh yeah you have the eagles on again the neighbors are listening turn up louder kind of thing so apparently that's a diss in the 70s mm. um so the eagles turned around and put kind of like their rebuttal in their hotel california song this so this the lyric they stab it with their steely knives is in reference to steely dan oh really yes so both bands say it was all in good fun um it's not quite the rap disses of the 80s uh but yeah, did anybody get shot because of this or <laughs> killed? No. Oh, nobody got robbed because of this? No. Oh, that's fun. Mm -mm. Moving on. Everyone's fine. Uh, Don and Glenn were fans of songs with deep meanings. So a lot of their, their albums are concept albums. Hotel California um, also being a concept album. And it's kind of one of those things where there's a lot of stuff in there, and it just is up to the listener to figure out what they want to take from it. And a lot of it's you know, kind of now turn it into mythology kind of thing. Evangelicals have denounced it as satanic. Cool. Um, and people do see symbolism in the cover, uh, album cover, which Don Henley says isn't there. He says that's nonsense and crazy. Um, and he basically says the song is about innocence, going from being very innocent to having experience. So moving to LA and becoming famous and all that kind of, that kind of entails in it. He says, quote, we were all middle-class kids from the Midwest Hotel California was our interpretation of the high life in Los Angeles. Even more, it was a sweeping portrayal of the dark side of the American dream. The lyrics evoked what Henley later called LA's tarnished elegance. It had the two things that are necessary for life, mystery and possibility. It was originally titled Mexican Reggae, obviously because of the sound, and the finished product was sculpted uh, during sessions in both Miami and Los Angeles with, with Felder and Joe Walsh spending three days working on their epic climactic guitar battle. Yeah, it this thing is yeah. so sick. Released in December 1976, the song spent 19 weeks on the charts, grounding one of the most successful albums. And Glenn Fry said, quote, it's just like a little movie. A lot of it doesn't have to make sense. So by the time the tour came around to promote the album, everyone's partying had taken a toll physically and mentally. 
Henley ended up bringing his own mattress on the tour. So a band seamstress had to make a special cover with handles to help carry it from city to city. Why did he need a mattress so he could just sleep during in like well, the, the backstage? He or? said his back was such a mess from awkward angles of playing the drums and keeping his mouth on the microphone that he was in ex- oh. he was in excruciating pain and couldn't sleep, which makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. So that he, would screw yeah, your mid back. He up had to and like your lower back. Stand the mic and then do all these crazy drum things. Yeah, um, that sucks. Glenn Fry said his back was also messed up during this time, but he believes it was from all the cocaine he was doing. <laughs> hey, way to go, Glenn. <laughs> he said about the song Life in the fast, fast Lane that he couldn't even listen to the song without it making him sick at this point. He said the song was about telling people that cocaine wasn't great. He says it turns on you. It messed up my back muscles. It messed up my nerves. It messed up my stomach. It made me paranoid. So don't do drugs, kids. So what is that song about? Life in the Fast Lane oh, is about okay. cocaine? Yeah, we'll get to that. That seems pretty so, obvious, I guess, about the title. Yeah. Irving Azoff, their manager that we talked about in the last episode, said the Eagles started breaking up during the recording of this album. So that was, was kind oh, of their, really? their kind of highest point in their career, but also they started kind of breaking apart at this, at this point. There was also creative differences, and now there was just constant differences about everything, like creatively, personally, everything. And so as Nana would say, too much forced togetherness. Shout out, Nana. Shout out, Nana. Shouts out, Nana. <laughs> Hotel California um, won song. What? Sorry, the hotel. The song, not the album, won record of the year in '78. Um, they didn't show up to accept the award. They were getting pretty bad pe- bad press at the time because of all their crazy antics and fighting and stuff. And Irving Azoff didn't want to possibly have them lose and then have like something humiliating happen because one of them acted out and got drunk or was high or whatever and end up in the news so if that doesn't tell you how crazy everything was then i don't know what does but azoff wanted a guarantee that they would win so but they couldn't rig the awards obviously god forbid shame shame hollywood i'm sure they would never rig something um so avos Azov suggested that they hide in a dressing room somewhere without anybody knowing that they were there and then if they did win they would come out and then they would also play a song but the academy rejected that idea um so the band ended up just doing a rehearsal somewhere else and instead watched it on television and they won and and, uh somebody else accepted the award for them so I'm gonna play Hotel California for you since nobody knows what this song sounds like ready
There you go. Super sick. Do you want me to it play sounds, all six minutes of it? I mean, yeah. I'm, down. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It sounds like the super spacey guitar part in the beginning sounds like like the night sky in like a desert. Yep. And then it comes and then it comes down into the doo doo yeah. on the dark desert. Well, highway. then you That's also like, have your you have your rattlesnake your rattlesnake shaky yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. It's ksh, whatever that it's thing so is. So good. Which is exactly what it sounds like. What I just did. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so the other big hits from that album are "Victim of Love," "New Kid in Town," which also won a some kind of award that year. And Life in the Fast Lane. So Life in the Fast Lane is interesting. Joe Walsh was doing a warm-up exercise, which Aiden knows a lot about because um, <laughs> he does that at school. It's all, and all day. It gives him tar- carpal tunnel syndrome. <laughs> Literally. And Henley, My wrists hurt. <laughs> and Henley asked, what the hell is that? And the lick ended up, I sound just like him, and the lick ended up being Life in the Fast Lane. That's exactly what happened with the uh, Sweet Child of Mine beginning lick. Oh, really? Yeah, it's like a circular ex- guitar exercise that Slash was doing, like just sitting oh, on yeah. the couch. That's right. I re- didn't we talk like, about that, that in the Guns N' Roses episode? I don't remember. Yeah, we might have. So the lyrics are from a story about Glenn Fry and his drug dealer, of course, who made his back hurt. Glenn was riding shotgun with his drug dealer as they were going to a poker game, and they were going about 90 miles an hour, and Glenn, sa- Glenn said, what are you doing? And the drug dealer said, life in the fast lane, baby. <laughs> That's it. It's as simple as that. That's how you make yeah. a song, man. You just do a lot of coke, do some warm-up exercises, and you're good. All right, so I'm going to play Life in the Fast Lane. So here's the, the lick. That's probably my favorite. Yeah, I love that Eagle song too. Song. That song's sick. It's just so like the dun, snare dun, sounds dun, so dun, good. Yeah, it's such a tight song. And all yep. that, everything in the, I don't know. And they're all in all of their songs. All of the filler guitar licks, or like just the way that they fill the space of the song is like literally perfect. Yeah, it's, it's just so satisfying. There's a lot when you research them about how um, I can't remember if we mentioned it in the last episode or not because I'm losing my memory. Um, about how they sound so tight on stage and their album yeah. when you see them live they always sound like the studio which a lot of people criticize but no, they're like but, but they no, spend awesome. they spent hours and hours and hours meticulously rehearsing everything yeah. so they didn't disappoint anybody which I think is really yeah, cool yeah their live videos are cool um, okay so their next album after this long crazy Hotel California um, epic rise to fame and then their tour and stuff they were they were burnt out, but they had to keep going. Uh, the next one's called The Long Run, which uh, took about 18 months to record. Randy Ooh. Meisner left after Ho- Ho- the Hotel California tour, and Timothy Schmidt came to replace him. 
Uh, Schmidt was the basis for Poco, which I think we've mentioned in other episodes. It was a California band. Um, Henley said of this album that the band was, quote, completely burned out. It was supposed to be a double album, and they simply could not come up with enough songs. They got about 10 songs out, and they had some help from their longtime um, co-writing partner. And the track, The Long Run, uh, the title track is pretty much sums up the timing of the album and the new direction that music in this time was had the kind of direction it was taking going into the 80s. Disco was still kind of raining at the end of the 70s going into the 80s and punk was an emerging um, like new sound and the longevity of rock bands was in question. Nobody, people thought like rock was completely dead at this point. So that inspired the line who's going to make it we'll find out in the long run mm-hmm. and that's the line from the song and i would say the eagles are the ones that made it <laughs> ironically um despite them seemingly having run out of steam during the album they still won best rock performance by a group in 1980 for heartache tonight um should i play that one too do you know heartache mm-hmm. tonight do you know heartache tonight what did you say about heartache tonight do you know heartache tonight <laughs> Are you awake? Hello? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I, I thought, sorry, I was reading the <laughs> next thing. You, um, well, I won't play that one because we have some other stuff coming up. Okay. And you're asleep. So it all I'm came asleep. crashing. I was reading the next line about the 1980 that I was going to say. Oh. The 1980s was when everything, uh, John Bonham died. Yeah. Somebody else died, or uh, John Lennon died in, the eight, in 1980. Apparently they ended in the 80s. Yep, everything. So the 80s basically just, 1980 just sucked, and then the 80s sucked. Right, it's almost like the like when the '60s ended and the difference in the '70s, the same yeah, thing. Yeah, it's, it's just weird how like precise it is each decade. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like the '50s are one thing almost to a T. Mm-hmm. I feel like we don't and have that anymore. The 60s. No. After the '90s, it. starting the 2000s, there's not. I don't really feel like there's anything. Well, pl- I don't know. Also, it'll be looked at differently. Like the 2000s to the 2010s, if you think about it, definitely are going to be looked at differently because. If, you, if somebody says, oh, the 2000s, you're going to think of, like, Britney Spears and all that stuff and, like, flip phones. But then somebody says the 2010s, and it's going to be, like, I, then that's going to be iPhones and all that stuff, even though iPhones came out yeah. in, like, 2007. Yeah, but you can't determine, like, a specific music genre, I guess, is what, what my point was. Yeah, not really. Except it's just or John Mayer. John it's Mayer's just John like Mayer and the rap, and then John Mayer <laughs> working with rappers. <laughs> there you go. That's pretty much all it is. So it all came crashing to a halt on the night of July 31st, 1980. At the end of the long run tour, the band played a benefit show for California Senator Alan Cranston. In a meet and greet before the show, Cranston thanked Don Felder for doing the show and Felder replied, you're welcome, Senator, I guess. Fry was so embarrassed at his comment, he confronted Felder and was super pissed and like it was on, they were gonna fight. So all the tension and everything was erupting at this point. So the band took the stage, and Frey, Fry looked back at Felder, and Felder says, only three more songs, I'll kick your ass. <laughs> Which what? I think is amazing. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so they were both thinking, um, according to Fry, that they were, were going to kill each other after the show. Like, they could not wait to beat the crap out of each other. So it doesn't really say in the interview... Uh, Fry doesn't go on to say if they actually confronted each other or not or what happened after the show but when Timothy Schmidt called Fry the next day Fry told him the band was over and that was it they literally never they never played again 14 years went by 
So after that, they all went on to have pretty successful solo careers. Um, Joe Walsh, who I forgot I loved so much. He is amazing. He had a, he has an amazing life. He's like a, a character in himself. He had like a lot of heartbreak in his life. He lost a, a child at a very young age. Um, he dated Stevie Nicks from Fleetwood Mac and they, she said he, she was, he was like the love of his, her life. Like he's just, and he's really into politics and, and very liberal and he's like a cool guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he ran for president in 1980 and his platform was free gas for everyone, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. Okay. <laughs> and he ran for vice president in 92. They were kind of just like, started out as like gags, which everyone got, unlike mm-hmm. the Trump presidential craziness. Anyway, um, so Fry, Henley, Walsh, and Felder, and Schmidt reunited in 1994 for the Hell Freezes Over tour. Uh, Fry said, quote, for the record, we never broke up. We just took a 14-year vacation, which I think is funny. The Eagles have won six Grammy Awards, and they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1998. Glenn Fry went on to have success as a solo artist in the 80s. Most famously, uh, the song Heat, The Heat Is On was the theme for Beverly Hills Cop, which I love. I love that song. He acted a little bit, too. Um, in 2000, he started suffering from rheumatoid arthritis and eventually died from its complications in 2016. Mm-hmm. The Eagles just wrapped up a short stint at the MGM Vegas Casino. They played their Hotel California album in its entirety. Uh, they were there for a few days. They added on some dates um, because it was sold out so much. And Fry's son, Deacon, is actually playing with the band now, which um, the, oh, band, cool. the band was really excited to have him there and honor his dad. Uh, due to its popularity, the shows at the MGM, they are now going to go on a 2020 North American tour, which they I think they literally just announced last week. Oh, wow. Yeah. Awesome. So, well, that... Do you, if you, I don't know if you remember or not, but 2016, when Glenn Fr- uh, Fry mm-hmm. died, we were in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Remember, we all found out. We had a nice view of the ocean of Maui. In the in the background, like at one of the little bars, you could hear. Oh yeah, that's right. Remember that? Yeah, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. How do you remember that? Because I was like, I'll remember this moment for the rest of my life. Oh, that's really cool. He had just died. We looked it up, and then I, w- I went outside and I sat down and I like because I was like playing the yeah, Eagles songs. Yeah, I remember that. And stuff. Yep. And then he had just like happened to die. And then you can hear the song in the background. Obviously, they're they're probably playing it because it was because on the news. One, they yeah. probably would have played it that night anyway. It's like a little right. band in a bar, yeah. but also just because he had died. Yeah, it's like, damn. Yeah, that's really cool. What a great memory. Yeah. All right. Well, in honor to wrap this up of Glenn Fry, we're gonna close out with the Beverly Hills Cop song, "The Heat Is On." R.I.P. Right. Glenn Fry. All right. All thanks right. for listening, guys.